Right, let's take a minute and uh, pray. Jesus, we ask for the Holy Spirit just to, to be on this message. We pray that the Word of God would, would hit the mark. We pray that your Word would do things in us, that it wouldn't just be something we hear, just ideas we hear and just kind of ponder a little bit and forget about, but these words would, would change us, they would move us, they would refine us, they would really make us more like you. And so, yeah, just do what you do best this morning. Apply your word to our hearts. Amen. Amen. So if you're, if you're brand new with us, we are in the middle of a, a series. We're kind of actually coming to the end of a very long series in the book of Acts. It's 28 chapters. And so today we're looking at uh, chapter 26. So we have two more after this. I'm excited to finally finish this series. I love the book of Acts, but I always get, I've, this is the second time I've gone through it, and when I get to the end, I'm like, oh, I can't wait to, to finish. But I am excited about this message, and the next two, there's some great content in chapter 27 and 28. So uh, here we go. The title of this, this message is called Just As I Am, and it's just a phrase from, from this chapter that we'll see in a few minutes. So the context is that Paul, the Apostle Paul, this great missionary of the first century, is in a large hall, <clears throat> uh, sort of a court, okay, being asked to give a defense of his ministry work that is really infuriating the Jewish leaders. This large hall is filled with just so many different kinds of people. Uh, you have Jewish leaders, prominent people in the Roman province of Caesarea, uh, Roman tribunes, military officials, politicians. You have Governor Festus. He's like the new governor of this region. King Agrippa, who came in to sort of welcome the new governor. And this lady named Bernice, who is either King Agrippa's sister or wife. Nobody really knows. The message version puts it this way. Anybody who was anybody was in this large hall and you know, seeing Paul uh, give a defense of his actions. So they're all gathered to watch this little man. They do say Paul was a little man, a uh, little bald guy, and to sort of be investigated, be interrogated. And, you know, they were spectating to see, is this guy going to stay in prison? Is he going to be executed? Uh, it's it kind of a big deal, as we likened it in my last message, because we've been kind of talking about this for a few weeks. But uh, it's like one of the great court cases, you know, that captures the public attention. But what I find particularly moving about this account in Acts 26 is the boldness and the clarity of Paul in the public arena in his communication of the gospel message. So the last message I preached dealt pretty much dealt with this theme as well. So this could be maybe a part two of the last message. As I talked about in the last message, the pressure, if you are a follower of Jesus, you feel this, the pressure in our society for Christians to be silent about the gospel 
seems to increase a little bit every year. Uh, people don't mind if we talk about God's love. You know, that God's done some nice things in our lives. People aren't too worried about that. But when we start talking about sin and repentance and the insufficiency of our own morality and our guilt before a holy God, that all are sinful and all are guilty before God and nobody qualifies by their own righteousness for entrance into heaven, judgment, wrath, things like that, uh, it gets really uncomfortable really quick. It's harder and harder to speak about these things. Even inside the safe walls of churches, I feel like a lot of pastors are starting to cave and just cater the message and soften the message and only say certain things. I think we can all agree that our mandate from God to go out and preach the gospel to the lost is not only challenging, but it is costly. It's always been costly for 2,000 years. If we really started speaking without holding back, we might lose friends, right? We might get family members upset, and some of us have done that. We might be fired from our job. We might be ostracized from our communities that we're a part of, maybe even verbally assaulted or physically assaulted. And we know in many places in this world, uh, there's even a greater cost to speaking the gospel message. It could be, it could be prison for you. It could be, it could be death. And the gospel, again, has always had that cost to it. As I've said many times, people don't get martyred, usually, for being nice people or for doing good works or sharing their food with the poor. And those are all good things we should do. Right? As Christians, we should be authentic and care and have compassion. But really, where Christians get in trouble for 2,000 years is when they preach the gospel message. Because by nature, the gospel message is deeply offensive. And we'll see that as we get into this. Now, the problem with this is obvious, I think, to any serious Christian. We live in a society in which the vast majority of people are spiritually lost. That's just a fact. What I mean is simply that, you know, what the Bible describes as a person who doesn't know Christ and isn't, doesn't have the new birth. The Bible uses phrases like they're without God, without hope, under God's wrath or by nature, uh, under God's wrath, guilty in bondage to sin, captives of Satan. I mean, these are just phrases from the Bible. The majority of people around us, even the nice folks and the moral people and the religiously devout are not ready to stand before God. And if they were to die today, they would be lost and separated from God for eternity. This is the Bible truth, right? Now, there may be special exceptions here and there of someone finding God through a dream or somehow on their own, all on their own, they sort of find Jesus. But, listen, the overwhelming majority of people who have been reconciled to God, born of the Spirit, were brought to faith through a human instrument. A parent, a sibling, a pastor, a cousin, a deacon, a teacher, a stranger, a friend. Someone told them the message 
of Jesus. And the gospel message changed them. Paul puts it in this way in Romans 1, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Therefore, sharing the gospel isn't just one of those things that we should you know, maybe try to do at some point. It's not one of a thousand things that Christians should do. It's not just something we should do because it's like rewarding for us. Uh, this is really, really important. God has entrusted us as his people with the message that can actually deliver people out of darkness and bring them into light. Sometimes it feels crazy. Like, why did God trust us <laughs> with this task? We're so imperfect. We're so flawed. And yet that's how he chose to do it. And if you're thinking, well, I don't really need to worry about preaching the gospel to people because I'm not a preacher, right? You know, you might think, well, that's what Pastor Scott does. That's what we, you know, that's what we hire pastors to do, to, to preach the gospel. And then we try to drag our Christian friends in, let the pastor preach to them. And there's some truth to that. But listen, we're all called to communicate this gospel message. All Christians are commissioned by God to share Jesus. We're all called to be witnesses, ambassadors of Christ, messengers. Now, we're not all called to get up in front of an audience with a microphone and preach the gospel message. Of course, that's the calling, the kind of special assignments of maybe certain people um, within the body of Christ. But we are all called to make the most of every opportunity we have. We can share Christ one-on-one -on -one with someone. We can share Christ in the workplace. We can share Jesus through our art or our music or through our work. Kind of what Pat is doing. I mean, his whole business is kind of proclaiming something of Christ. We share Christ by building an art installation with maybe 100 people, which we've done before, right? And many of you have been a part of that. We can share the gospel in many different ways by writing letters to people. But one thing we cannot do and must not do is be silent. That's right. <laughs> so let's jump into Acts chapter 26 and examine what Paul's message was and kind of be inspired this morning by his bravery to speak the gospel message clearly and boldly. So the first few verses says this. So Agrippa, this is King Agrippa, said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And this is before the whole crowd of all these important people in this great hall. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. He said, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you. He's kind of honoring King Agrippa, King Agrippa. I, have, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Now, just a reminder about Agrippa. He came from a family that had a horrible reputation uh, of violence against God's people, right? Remember Herod, when Christ was a baby, how Herod was threatened by this, maybe this king, and he, so he just killed all of the babies, um, this is Agrippa's family. 
Uh, or do you remember John the Baptist being beheaded? Or James being killed by the sword? This is, this is Agrippa's relatives, basically. This is the family that Agrippa comes from. This guy was kind of scary. But it's interesting that Paul says in verse 3 that Agrippa is familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. So maybe Agrippa was a little different than his crazy father and grandfathers and all that. There seems to be some, some revelation maybe that, that Agrippa had. Maybe he was different. But Paul here begs, kind of picture the scene, begs Agrippa and really the crown to listen patiently. I mean, Paul's before this massive crowd of important people. Many in the audience, of course, wanted Paul dead. Agrippa, King Agrippa, certainly had the power to hand Paul over to the Jews to be executed. At this moment, I don't think Paul knew what was going to happen, right? Because, come on, you know, Paul knew, Paul knew that sometimes it doesn't go well for Christians. Sometimes Christians are tortured. Sometimes they're killed. Sometimes just things happen. Paul knew that. He wasn't sure what was going to happen in this situation. So Paul's pleading here is partially, I think, to save his own life that was on the line, but he was also feeling, I think, the emotion of what may have been the greatest opportunity he had ever had in his life up to this point to preach the gospel to so many people of importance. In one place. Verse 4 says, My manner of life, he goes on with his words, my manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Paul establishes some common ground with the Jews in the audience who hated him and wanted him dead. But he's kind of saying, I'm not a cult leader. I mean, Paul wasn't a sorcerer, uh, you know, a menace to society. He was a Jew, in fact, he was a Pharisee, which he even called himself a Pharisee of Pharisees. You know, he was a, a pastor of pastors uh, amongst the, the Jewish people. He was a man of impeccable uh, morality. He was one of them. So Paul's reminding his Jewish brothers that he's, he's not different. He's really one of, one of them. And I think he's making the point to King Agrippa that the Jews want to kill basically one of their own. He's using some reason. Verse 9 says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Like I approved of it. I punished them often in all the synagogues. I tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them, kind of even going out of his way 
and going out to foreign cities, right? Remember when during his conversion, he was on the road to Damascus. He was he was going to, to distant places to basically drag people, drag these Christians out of their homes and put them in prison and maybe have them put to death. So Paul is here saying that in so many words to the many Jews who are present, this is my paraphrase, he's saying, yeah, I get it. I was just like you at one time. I went to great lengths to persecute these Christians and drag them in prison and encourage that they would be killed. I even went to faraway places to satisfy my raging fury. So this is Paul using reason. He's, it's kind of disarming, right? You know, because the Jews are all there and they're like trying to persecute this Christian man, Paul. And Paul's saying, yeah, I was just like you at one point. He was establishing some common ground actually, with his audience, which if, you, uh, if you've ever taken a course on public speaking, and I did in Bible school, you know, they always talk about that. It's like the number one thing. Understand your audience. Know who's, know who's in front of you and connect with your, with your audience. That's exactly what Paul's doing here. Well, verse 12 says, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, now he's going to share his testimony At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, which was Paul's former name, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. This is pretty potent testimony here. It probably sounded unbelievable to most of the people in the room. The audience was forced to think either Paul here is crazy or he is fabricating this story or he's telling the truth. Suddenly, everybody in the room has to put him into one of those three categories. What is significant here is that he essentially starts his testimony, right, with a personal account of an encounter with God. And I think, this is just my feeling, but I think oftentimes we don't attempt to tell our God encounter stories with people because we feel like they're just going to think we're crazy. And actually, we're right in that. (laughs) But those who are ripe will find their hearts burning inside. And that's what we're looking for. So yes, it's risky. People may think we're crazy. But the Holy Spirit will bear witness to the truth we are telling and let certain people know that it's real. And I, th- I can think of many specific examples through the years, especially because I'm, I'm a pastor. I get, maybe I get this question a little bit more frequently than others. I'm not really sure. But people will eventually, because I don't push on people. I don't push the gospel on people. But eventually they, they kind of get curious and like, so how did you get into this whole Christian thing? How, how did you become a pastor? 
Um, you know, and I, I, lo- I love that question. Sometimes I'll say something like, uh, oh, you, you don't want to know. You don't want, I can't tell you because you'll think I'm, you'll think I'm crazy. You don't want to hear about it. It's way too unbelievable. You know, just kind of, no, you don't want to hear about it. No, no, really. How did you, no, you don't want, it's just too, it's too much. Yeah. It's, you're not, I can't, you know, cause you're going to just think I'm, I don't, it's just too weird. Like I just can't, shoot. and then they're like so curious, right? Of course, at that point. But since I have their full permission at that point to speak, you really want to hear it? Yeah, I want to hear it. And so then I, I'll just give it to them. I'll just give them the most potent, unfiltered account of how I encountered the living God in 1989 as a 21-year-old kid and just what happened to me. And you, I just love it because they're just like, they're trying to process this like, I've, I know Scott. I know he's not a liar. I know he's not crazy. He's really reasonable, and I've known him for a long time, and his character is good. Like, they just don't know what to do with it, right? It's, it's a potent thing, but I encourage us to, to share our story with people and just let, let the chips fall where they may, you know, <laughs> just, just let people deal with it. I just did that actually quite recently, and it was just fun with uh, somebody who I'd known for a long time, and she has such respect for me, and I just wound up and gave it to her. And just in seven stars, she's like just trying to process it. Like, okay, wow, all right. I, don't, I just didn't know what to do with it. Um, I love it. But share your story with people, and that's what Paul does here. So Paul continues his testifying as he tells Agrippa and the crowd that the Lord spoke to him. He's saying, the Lord God spoke to me and said, verse 16, rise and stand up upon your feet for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Um, this is a, a side note, but I do not understand this sentence grammatically. Maybe one of you English people can figure this out. I've never been, I've, it just doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't read the right way. But what I get out of this, the gist of this, is that he was basically saying in so many words, God appeared to him for the purpose of being an eyewitness to the mighty works of God in his own life. Paul is saying, I am telling you these things because God told me to tell you these things. He's being pretty bold here. Paul says, God said to him, I am sending you. To many of the Jews in the room, this was kind of a familiar language, right? Uh, So it probably didn't sound totally crazy to the Jewish people because this was the story of Moses, right? God said to Moses, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh, to say, let my people go. I'm going to send Jeremiah, you know, to a people. I'm going to send Isaiah. I mean, God was calling different people all throughout uh, Jewish history to, to be his messengers and to speak certain things. And that's what Paul's saying here. God called me to say the things that I'm saying. Well, then Paul describes what God uh, sent him to do. This is where it gets, gets a little heavier. Maybe he thought it was crazy uh, when he shared his testimony, but now he's going to enter into a realm of, now he's going to start to get pretty offensive with his message. But verse 18, he says, 
these words, uh, God has called me to open their eyes. He's talking about the Gentiles and the Jews so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now, that sentence right there, we, it's like when we're reading Acts, we can just read over that sentence. This is, you're, you, you gotta remember, he's speaking to at least part of the crowd is Jewish and they're, they have a, an understanding of what he's saying when he's saying these words. This is loaded. This is where Paul moves from his personal testimony to communicating some of the elements of the gospel message. He says he's called to open their eyes. By saying this, he was saying that people are spiritually blind and cannot see the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ. This is loaded. People are blinded, and it's my job to help them see. Whoa. This, again, is is kind of a polarizing statement here. Either the audience admits they are blind and that they need Paul to help them see, or they conclude Paul is just crazy. Paul adds the words, so that they may turn from darkness to light. In these few words, Paul is saying that his hearers are in spiritual darkness, ignorance, moral depravity. This could have been taken so insulting. I mean, you're talking about the Jewish leaders were example. I mean, these guys were righteous and holy and followed the law and read the scriptures and were renowned and looked up to as godly, holy people. Paul's saying they're ignorant. Paul was saying not only that they were in darkness and he wasn't, but that he was the one chosen by God to bring them out of their darkness. No wonder they wanted to kill Paul. Paul goes further and says that God has appointed him to turn people away from the power of Satan to God. Now Paul is telling highly religious people that they actually don't know God but are captives to Satan. I mean, this is exactly what Jesus did, right? To the Pharisees. He said to the Pharisees, the highest religious leaders of his day who claimed to believe in Jehovah God, and he said, you are serving your father, the devil. Those are the words of Jesus. Paul was telling them in his message that somehow, (laughs) uh, Paul was telling them that his message could somehow pull them out of the grip of Satan and reconcile them to God. And some in the audience had to be pretty deeply offended by this implication here. Some may have thought, wow, okay, maybe, you know, maybe, I, maybe I am deceived, maybe I am deluded, maybe I am under the power of the, Satan's kingdom and need to be set free. It was probably a smaller percentage, right? But that's why Paul was speaking these things. He was looking for the ripe, looking for the one who had ears to hear. And part of what we're called to is to, part of what what is hard is that usually when we share the gospel, most reject it. But some will listen. 
Now, this is an easy crowd because um, probably most of you are followers of Jesus or you're very ripe and you're getting very close to being Christian, which is awesome. But I've definitely preached in settings. I've preached at funerals and weddings where there's been maybe 90% of the crowd is not Christian. And I'm thinking, oh, man, this is going to be rough. This is going to be rough. I got to do it, though. I got to share it. And, and it's always hard because out of the, let's say, 90 people present who are not Christian, maybe there's only three or four or five who are receptive. And usually they come and connect with me or there's tears or something. But usually the majority reject. And that's hard, right? We don't like that. But that's part of it. Paul also says that his message from God would help people find forgiveness of sins. And he words it this way, a place among those who are sanctified. And this too is loaded. Paul was saying to his audience, both Jews and Gentiles, that they needed forgiveness. I mean, it sounds nice, right? You know, oh, I'm just preaching forgiveness. But it's kind of offensive to say, you need to be forgiven. Yeah, because you're, you're a sinner and, and you, you need the forgiveness of God. In other words, they were guilty before a holy God and they were out of place rather than in the place of being sanctified. And this was a huge part of Paul's theology that we find in all of his different letters in the New Testament. Paul often described the condition of humans before the new birth work of Jesus, right? As things like, I read some of them before, but dead in sin, uh, separated from the life of God, under the wrath of God, without God, without hope, guilty, lost, foolish, led astray, slaves to various passions, following the course of this world, and so on. This is the condition that Paul talks about over and over in his letters of a person who is not yet in Christ. So Paul was saying in so many words, you are guilty to this crowd who, like he's at their mercy, really. I mean, they could keep him in prison. They could have him killed. They could execute him. He just doesn't care. And I don't think he wanted to die or stay in prison, but he's just like, I'm, I'm just going for it right now. Like this could cost my, they could cut my head off, you know, in the next five hours, but I'm just, I'm just going for this because I am looking for the handful of people in this room who are ripe and just, wow, you know, talk about bravery. Paul spoke it out because God told him to speak it out. And then let's not miss the added words. He just adds this little phrase, by faith in me. Again, it seems like, what does that even mean? It's just a little little thing, little add-on. But the Jews processed this because Paul was basically saying that people are spiritually blind and guilty before God and that they, listen, the only way to come into God's favor and to receive forgiveness and a place at God's table is by placing their faith in Jesus. Because remember, the voice of the Lord God speaking to Paul identified himself as Jesus. This must have infuriated the Jews because they saw Jesus as a troublemaker and a threat to the Jewish religion, right? They were jealous of Jesus and actively spoke against him, saying he was a false teacher and even that he had a demon. They wanted to kill Jesus. And of course, at this point in history, they did kill him. He was dead. 
Now Paul was saying that the way to be cleansed of sin and to qualify for heaven was to place faith in Jesus who has been raised from the dead. So for a Gentile to do that would be a challenge, right? But for a Jewish leader to do that would require a great amount of humility. They would have to admit that all of their persecution against Jesus was misguided, precisely, by the way, what Paul was exemplifying to all of them, right? I mean, Paul was the persecutor of persecutors of the Christian faith, and now he just completely flipped upside down and was now a follower of Jesus. So he was kind of an example, right, to all the persecutors in the room. And saying, again, he's saying, I get it. I was like you, but I'm not anymore. This is what happened. Verse 19, he says, Therefore, O King Agrippa, kind of talking right to the king at this point, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but I declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should, here's the message, repent and turn to God performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So Paul describes the heart of his message to both Jews and Gentiles that they should repent, turn, 180 degree turn, change your mind, turn to God. This is really Jesus' message, right? Jesus went about all over the place and said what? Repent and believe. That was uh, the heart of Christ's message. So Paul was going out and telling religious people who thought they already had a relationship with God that they needed to repent. He was telling very devout Jews and moral people that they needed to change their way of thinking completely and come out of darkness and turn to God. Again, this is so insulting. So insulting. But for the ones who received it, it sure transformed them. It was a potent word that either deeply offended people or changed them or I guess elicited a dismissal of Paul as just being crazy. But no one was neutral to the message. The message forced everyone in the room to respond in some way. And this is really what the word of God does. The word of God doesn't come back void, right? The Bible says in Isaiah, um, it, it kind of accomplishes its purpose. And so the, for the person who is open and, and ripe and receptive, the, the word of God goes in and it, it changes them. If they're lost, they can be found. They can, if they, they're dead in their sin, they can actually be raised with, through the word of God, raised from the dead and brought into newness of life. They can experience the new birth. But for a person who has their ears closed and they don't want to hear the gospel and they reject it, the word of God will still have an effect it will have the effect of pushing them further away from God or hardening their heart. The word of God is very powerful. When it's preached as it should be preached, it will push someone close to God or push them far away. But it's not really neutral. It's not like, yeah, I don't know. That doesn't mean Unless they're not listening. But if they're listening, it will affect them. All right, so... Verse 21, for this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me, of course. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. 
And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Uh, so he's, he's reasoning here a little bit uh, with, with the crowd. And I want to I kind of get through this because we want to do communion, but I'm going to wrap this up in a few minutes. But verse 24 says, uh, I just think this is funny and it's a little dramatic, but verse 24 says, and he was saying these things in his defense, Festus, now this is the governor, the governor who's kind of hosting the king, and the governor's kind of sort of in charge of the gathering for the most part. So Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Festus was, you know, he's the new governor, not to be confused by King Agrippa, who was really much more powerful politically. Agrippa and Bernice were the guests of Festus in town. And I think Festus assumed that everybody in the room was feeling how he was feeling. Like, who is this crazy person, Paul? What an idiot. You know, he just speaks this thing out. But you know what's interesting? Agrippa if you read between the lines, it doesn't seem to be agreeing with Festus. I think it kind of backfires. The obnoxious insult by Festus toward Paul backfires publicly. And I think it was even a little humiliating to Festus. And watch what happens. Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, uh, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the... This is so bold. King Agrippa. He looks right in King Agrippa. Do you believe the prophets? He doesn't even wait for him to answer. I know you do believe. Whoa. All right, suddenly the mocking Festus and anyone else in the room uh, who may have been laughing was silenced as Paul reveals to everyone that King Agrippa actually believes much of what Paul is saying. You get the idea that Paul's had some kind of personal interaction with Agrippa or maybe some disciples did or some Christian leaders shared the gospel with Agrippa. We're really not sure, but somehow Paul knew that Agrippa knew about the message of the prophets and also about the controversies about Jesus. It's a little vague, but Paul says, the king knows about these things. Paul was telling everyone in the room that Agrippa understands and agrees with Paul. That was pretty risky, right? Maybe even impulsive, given the fact that the court was packed with Roman officials, Jewish leaders all watching. But it had the effect, I'm sure, of everyone suddenly thinking, wait, what? Is this crazy message that Paul's bringing? Is, do, wait, does Agrippa believe these things too? They're probably like studying Agrippa's face, trying to figure out what Agrippa would how would he, he would respond. And then there's this beautiful response. Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Now, this can be interpreted a lot of different ways. And it's kind of commonly used to describe someone who you share the gospel with and kind of almost bring them to faith. But there's more going on here. I believe Agrippa is being playful with Paul and is also being diplomatic because of all these important people in the room. But I don't think Agrippa laughed when Festus called Paul crazy. 
I think he just stared at Festus. Everyone in the room noticed that Agrippa did not laugh. Agrippa didn't deny what Paul said about the gospel or about what Agrippa knew. And I'm reading in between the lines here, but sometimes you can, you can learn a lot by what's not said by someone, right? And, you know, because he said, Paul, in such a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? He isn't saying, I don't want to be a Christian. He doesn't say, you're crazy. He doesn't say, I don't believe anything you're talking about. He doesn't deny. He just doesn't. He doesn't disagree with Paul. He wasn't rejecting Paul's message. In fact, he was admitting that Paul's message was kind of getting through. But maybe that he was saying in so many words, I'm going to need a little bit more time here to process this powerful testimony and message that you're giving to me today, Paul. So in some ways, Agrippa was setting an example for everybody in the room. Hey, this is a powerful message. Maybe we just need some time to think this one through. And then Paul, this is a very famous verse, verse 29. Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Amazing statement. Paul unashamedly says that his desire and prayer for King Agrippa and really everyone in the room listening, politicians, Jewish leaders, everyone, Festus, Bernice, everyone, is that they would come to know Christ and be like him, fully devoted to Christ. And I think this assertion is uncomfortable to us in an age, right, when society teaches us that there there are many different religions and so many different types of worldviews out there, and we just need to, you know, kind of accept all of them and just respect everybody and honor all of the different religions. And, you know, this is kind of, the thought goes this way. Never claim that your religion is superior in any way to another. Uh, Don't try to displace a person's faith, religious belief, and and press upon them your own. Uh, What's right for you might not be right for them. And, you know, that whole thing, pluralism and moral relativism and all that kind of stuff. It's, this is the thought, right? This is kind of the unspoken rule of, of our day. But this is not the mindset of Paul or Jesus or any authentic followers of Jesus for 2,000 years. It's not God's will for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance and the knowledge of the truth. The Christians in the first century claimed, listen, that no other name under heaven can save other than the name of Jesus. No one comes to the Father but through Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the only mediator between God and men. Apart from Jesus, regardless of how devout someone may be to their religion, a person will perish eternally. Only the covering of Christ's righteousness can save us from the wrath of God on the day of judgment. Now, this is definitely not a popular way of thinking in this generation, right? But it is the Christian way. So may we not be afraid to say publicly that it is our desire and our prayer that everyone on this planet, regardless of what religion or worldview they may have, would become, kind of like Paul said, such as I am. I want all people to know Jesus as I do because it's the only way to qualify for heaven. I was thinking that would be a great theme for our next murals on the outside of the building. 
for such as I am. Let's be inspired by Paul and let's be bold. Again, you're not going to get a mic maybe anytime soon. We're not called to be preachers speaking to crowds with microphones, but let's in our circles, in our ways, in our writings, in our postings, in the things that we do, let's, let's not bend this thing. This is, it's too important. Like this message that we're going to give to people, though it's risky and we may catch flack for it and catch disruption and people might not like us because of our message, but we're not trying to be offensive, but let's be faithful to the message because that's what love really is. If you really love somebody, you're going to tell them the truth because this is the only thing that can help them ultimately. People are going to stand before God one day and the thing that is going to prepare them for that day is the gospel message. So who are we to withhold it to? If we're really followers of Jesus, we have a a mandate from God. Go (laughs) into all the world and preach the gospel. You know, go into all the world and tell people, make disciples, go do it. Your messengers, your witnesses, go do it. So it's really not, I don't know where we get the thinking, well, I want to be a Christian, but I'm not going to say anything to anybody. (laughs) It's going to be a nice little quiet Christian. You can be nice and you can be quiet. You can be a quiet soul, but find your voice, find your way to communicate the gospel message to people. Know what the message is. Don't give your own version of it, your own soft version of it. Know what the message really is and then find ways to get it out there and watch what God will do. We're going to take a few minutes and I'm going to ask Chris, one of our elders, to come up and and lead us in communion. Uh, so if you need to slip out, that's okay. Uh, some of you might have an appointment or whatever, but we're going to take the next 10 minutes or so, and we're just going to remember what Christ has done for us.